0: Here we are now, with chapter number nine in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. This chapter is called Narcissus, or the Self-Contraction. Now normally, when you call someone narcissistic, it's a derogatory term. You say that, oh, you're so full of yourself. He's a narcissist. That person is self-absorbed. They've got an ego on themselves that is just all about them. But there's more detail if you go back to the Greek mythology, which is where this word comes from, the character of Narcissus, And there's a few little things around this story which can help complexify our understanding of this word, narcissist. Now, for one thing, this god's mother was told by one of the other gods that this person, narcissist, would have a long life, provided he never recognized himself. So that's interesting. And then there's also this thing, which is that he's actually quite good-looking. He's a very beautiful man. And everyone who sees him falls for him quickly. And there's a Greek god or a nymph, I think it is. might not be a god, it might be a nymph or something like that. Some other character in this story called Echo. And Echo is walking through the woods and she sees Narcissus and she falls in love and she thinks, wow. And then she goes to him and... He's thinking, well, are we going to fall in love? Are we going to be together? And he pushes her away because he's got a disdain for almost everyone, particularly for the people that love him. And she's very hurt by this. So she spends her days sort of wallowing in sadness, and she sort of fades away until nothing is left of her except the echo. And that's where we get the word echo from. Is because it's not actually there, but it's just a fragment of something that has been. But along comes another Greek god, or nymph, or character in this story. And this character hears about all this, and then sets to have some vengeance against Narcissus to teach him a lesson. And the way that vengeance is found is, well, he's brought over to a pond where he can see his own reflection in it, in the water. And he looks into that pond and he thinks, wow, how beautiful that man is. And there's two endings to the story. One ending is that Well, he spends the rest of his days completely self-absorbed, just looking into that pond, completely full of himself. And the other end, the other side of the story is, the other ending is that he kills himself because he realizes he can't get that man for himself. He can't have his dream beauty realized. It's just a reflection. So that's a little bit about narcissist, narcissism. And in this context, well, we're talking about hardcore hardcore transcendental psychology and therapy and meditation and self-image and the self and all that wonderful stuff. And basically in this context, it means being absorbed with your own story, with your own ego, with your own life. And this is very dangerous. This is very destructive. And it's how well people become bitter about the relationships around them. So the component of love is the one that's often not understood by narcissism. It's that there's actually an element of love in this character of Greek mythology. And the self-contraction is, well, we've been talking about transcending the self. Every chapter up until now, we've been talking about self-transcendence, moving into the witness, the bigger self, the bigger context, going into the the all, the God, the Godhead. Well, that's a self-expansion. That's a self-transcendence. And we also have, on the other side, well, a self-contraction, which means you go down, you fall into the small self. You become absorbed in the small self. And for every expansion, well, there is a contraction. So that's something to be aware of in spiritual progress. Spiritual progress is never just a... One step after the other affair, it's always back and forth, ups and downs, and all over the place. There's all sorts of things that happen. And in the case of an intimate relationship, well, there's a lot here, and there's a lot that can be drawn from this. First of all, when you fall in love with someone, there's an expansion and a contraction. And some can put this down to the story of, well, you have a holiday period or you have a honeymoon period. And that's where you're first getting to know someone. And it's all the love, lovely stuff of the start of the relationship. Everything's new and everything they do is wonderful. But once that honeymoon period has ended... Well, then there's the reality of what that person actually is. And if you're mature, you start to work with that. And you say, okay, this is our relationship. This is what we're working with. Let's get to it. And if you're, well, if you're younger, then you say, whoa, who is this person? And you run away and you find someone else. This is not who I thought you were. This is what I wanted. I wanted the fun stuff. Let's run away. And in the case of our characters that we're following along in this story, well, their honeymoon was spent taking care of the cancer patient. Their honeymoon was spent, well, in hospitals, in sickness, in intense times. And that brings me to another broad point that is important for our story at the moment, for today, for this conversation here, in this predicament that we call currently seem to have found ourselves in, and that is that there's a difference between having an intimate relationship and going through hard times, and going through a hard time in the intimate relationship. (laughs) Is that too much of a teasing apart? Let's put it this way. Let's take it, let's take it like this. Let's use this story as an example. So Treya and Ken have got this amazing relationship. They're madly in love. But they're in tough times. They've got tough external circumstances. Now, there's many ways we can divide the external and internal in this story. Because it is also an internal struggle, particularly for Treya. But for this conversation, let's say, well, cancer is like an external situation. It's an external circumstance. And then the relationship is the internal. Now, throughout the care and the surgeries and the processes and the chemotherapy and all that horrible stuff, the relationship was strong. They were good. Terrible circumstances, strong relationship. And here what we find to happen is that now things are starting to actually turn around. Now they are getting through the cancer treatment and things are actually starting to look quite okay. And yet the relationship is going through a rough period. So... They finally moved to their new house, and it's a beautiful house in Lake Tahoe. If you can see pictures of this on the internet, it's just like, wow, this is a stunning place. Beautiful lake with hills all around, and clear waters, and snow on the tops, and emerald green colors. It's just magical. And their house is just amazing. They say that from every window in the south face side of it, they can see the entire lakes. It's somewhere up a hill. and There's stunning white beaches. It's a brand new house that's been built for them. So it's a very nice place to be. And Ken, well, he starts drinking. And there's this thing with drinking, which is, well, alcohol does a lot of things. It's quite destructive and it affects people in many ways. It's a very deep thing to be tackling and describing and the issues. And you've got addiction problems and then you've got psychological dynamics between your relationships. So, for example, there was this form of psychology by Eric Byrne called Transactional Analysis. And he had this book called Games People Play, and he actually identified the, the alcoholic as one of the psychological scripts that people go through and people assume these roles around an alcoholic. And there's really too much to say about how destructive alcoholism is but here, let's just stick with this story. So, Ken, in a sense, looks as though he's what we call a functioning alcoholic. So, he's still doing his duties. He's still still doing what he needs to. And he's still drinking quite a lot. Spirits in the morning. Beers over lunch. A bottle of wine in the afternoon. Spirits in the evening. That's a lot of alcohol. Now, he's a big guy. He's pretty tall, pretty muscular. It might be that he has a very big tolerance. It might be that he doesn't actually feel drunk. He doesn't even feel tipsy. So how alcohol affects you is never as simple as, well, you drink it and then you feel drunk and then you wake up with a hangover. That's not the case for everyone. Everybody's different. And in the case of Ken, well, actually, it could be that his meditative awareness is actually working against him. It might actually be that he's allowing himself to have certain feelings and disidentifying with them, which is therefore not making it true and clear to him how dangerous they are and how much they are affecting him. So, alcoholism and drinking excessively is a tricky one. And there are people who have extremely high tolerance, who are very much still functioning, and yet the alcohol is going in, and the alcohol is affecting them. And that's what starts to happen with Ken. And Treya, well, she's in the clear, She's finished up her chemotherapy, and she's now in the recovery period, but she hasn't really been, because it's cancer, you can never really tell, because there can always be a recurrence. And basically, you don't really, you're not really cured of cancer until you die of something else. That's the way they put it in this story. So she's still got a lot hanging over her. And Ken says, in this one part, that he felt as though they'd both carried a huge and heavy load up a steep mountain. Carried it up quite well and set it down very carefully, only then to completely collapse. So they've been doing so well to get through all that they have putting on the brave face, and now it's starting to catch up with them. He also says that in this chapter there are things which he's not proud of, and he doesn't intend to dwell on them, but it's also important to the story that he doesn't gloss them over. So you need to understand that what we discuss here, particularly in this chapter, is done from a place of honesty and done from a place of wanting others to know about how not to fall into certain mistakes that can occur in intimate relationships. So it's all sounding pretty tough at the moment and it is and to make things worse well actually a bizarre disease comes through the village and it affects 200 people with an illness that is unrecognized that's not identified and it seems to resemble a mild form of mul- multiple sclerosis sclerosis so that can have a number of different symptoms to it, and basically multiple sclerosis is, well, it's when the immune system in your body starts to identify things within you as things that are bad, so it attacks it. So things like tissues around the nerves or around the veins. And here, here, when I tread on this sort of territory, I become very, I have to be very careful because, you know, I'm not a doctor and I don't know how to actually describe these diseases. But some of the symptoms are sort of like a, well, you can get a chronic fever or a muscle dysfunction or sweats or swollen glands and exhaustion and fatigue. And it's very similar to what is happening with Ken. Because he's got this disease. And there's even this thing where... The, t- the town is reporting these cases. And they sort of send it off to the National Health Clinic for analysis. And the National Health Clinic is saying, No, look, we think you're full of it. You're just making this up. This isn't r- right. This is there's, there's nothing going on here. Because it's not recognized. And then a local doctor who just so happens to have a PhD in the right field to be able to take the data and analyze the data, is able to set things right and to say, well, actually, this is a disease. And this is a tricky one because there are diseases that we don't know about. There are diseases that aren't identified. To think that every disease has been put into a catalog and when you all you have to do is just go to the doctor and they look it up well, that's not always the case. And I imagine this, this is what comes to mind when I hear about this is, well, technology and economics, well, they drive the medical industry. Pharmaceuticals must be, I think it's the biggest, maybe it's the second biggest industry in the face of the planet behind firearms. Firearms. And I think, well, say you've got this disease which millions upon millions of people have. Well, there's going to be money in finding out what causes it, how you treat it, and what's the cure. Because if you can patent the cure, well, then you've got yourself a lot of money. Right? That's basic economics. Now, the other side of this is, well... Say you have a really rare disease that is really rare and you can't really make any money off it. Well, in some cases, you have to charge a lot of money for it for certain treatments. And In another case, well, you might get government subsidy or there might be someone who's in a university who just has an interest in science. They have an interest in medical research and it's government funding that allows them to identify the disease. So government subsidy is another reason we have an understanding of diseases. And then there, are, of course, there might be foundations as well where someone gets a rare disease and then they realize, oh, well, I need to start a foundation because there's not enough research into this. And many diseases, well, they're still in that. It's not like we're in this place where it's a disease and then we do the research and then solve it and then it's done. Done and dusted, no, we've, we've worked out that disease. No, even diseases that have been around for centuries are still being studied, Something like even something like cancer. We still don't know how it works. We're still learning more. So poor Ken has this disease. But he doesn't know it at this stage. And it's really starting to get him down. He's really starting to feel really tired. And on the other side of this, his central problem was... That he'd submerged his desires and his own interests to help Treya. And that was a big mistake. And he says he'd wished he'd had a clearer understanding about what that toll would take on him. And to top it all off, well, he stopped meditation. So he's not doing his spiritual practice. And Treya, well, she's in a rough spot as well, because she's lost her period. So she's got a premature menopause. And we don't need to go into all of the details, but this has an effect on her in a way that is not just, oh, you might not be able to have a baby again. It also affects her sex life affects her intimacy and she becomes very angry at one point because she should, <coughs> pardon me, she should have been told by the doctors or she should have thought it through herself. And when we say something about a woman having her period, we should say, well, what can be said? And from the standpoint of this narrative of where we are now and how Treya feels about losing her period, well, it's fair to say all things considered that a period is something that should be cherished. It should be something that should be appreciated very much so. Because it is, well, the, it's the celebration of the woman It's the celebration and the signifier of new life. It's the signifier of creation. And also the signifier of, well, the peak experience of being with a man. Being with a significant other. And make no mistake about it, that's a very important part of Any intimate relationship and it's not a big point they don't talk about sex much in this book it's only got a few comments here and there but that's not to say it's not addressed so if you are a younger woman and you have some resentment towards your period which I can imagine a lot of women would I can imagine that's very common. Well, I just wish there was a way to open up that perspective. I wish there was more talk about how important it is to embrace a woman's period. And I don't know the best way to go about that. I don't know. I don't know the best way to talk about these things. These are just ideas that are coming up as we go through this narrative. So they start to talk to each other in not very nice ways. And there are nice evenings here and there, but they become quite bitter and they sort of snap at each other and make these comments. And it's like, well, it's like they love each other, but they don't like each other. And it gets pretty bad. Because it gets to the point where they can't say anything nice to each other. And Ken feels, well, they don't do too well trying to work it out without a third party. And isn't it funny that actually on the night they met, Treya and Ken, it was with someone who was having relationship issues. Ken was working as the third party. And now, it's the other way around. It's Ken and Trey that need the third party, the referee. And one evening, they're sort of looking over some material about stress or some models about stress. And they're sort of looking at this chart, which has different things in life which cause stress. And they have different point systems to them. And so, well, a death in the family or a spouse was given 100 points. And Ken and Treya actually have had some of the top five. So marriage, moving house, and a major illness. So they've had three out of the top five causes of life stress. It's funny that marriage causes stress. Isn't isn't that funny that that's something that's on there? And then also something like taking a vacation, that was 15 points. Well, You think taking a vacation should relax you, but actually it's on the stress chart. (laughs) And Ken says, well, if we take a vacation, it'll kill us. (laughs) So that's a funny way of looking at stress, isn't it? And the issues, well, the issues is that, well, the issues are that Treya is controlling She's trying to monopolize Ken's time. And it's true. She loves him so much that she wants to be with him all the time. And she's even got this thing about herself, sometimes wondering, well, was my cancer a way to have his undivided attention around the clock? Have I done this to myself for this reason? And Ken becomes, well, he becomes a bit bitter. He's got his neuroses coming up. He's got his snide comments. And because he can't just stand up and say, hey, look, I don't want you controlling me, they come out in little ways, in little comments. He has these sort of back chats. And sometimes, well, sometimes his comments are just too smart for me to understand, like he's got too much wit, because someone someone asks Ken, oh, how about we go for a walk or something, and he says, oh, no, I don't really want to, and Trey's like, no, come on, come on, let's go for a walk up to this, up to this view, up to this mountain, and Ken's really bitter about it, and of course, he doesn't know he has this disease, this fatigue syndrome-like disease, but his friend's like, oh, come on, no, you can do it. And he says, and one of his friends says, "What? Don't you like exercise?" And Ken says, "Yeah, I like exercise, but in homeopathic amounts." And I was like, "What? I don't get it. What is what is homeopathic?" And as it turns out, well, homeath- homeo- homeopathy is a pseudoscience. It's a system of alternative medicine that was created in. 1796, by Samuel Hallen Mann. And basically, its theory is that when you get sick, you have certain symptoms. And what we can do to cure the cause of those symptoms is to give you something that also causes similar milder forms of those symptoms. So we give you something that is like the thing that is giving you the sickness. And since then, I mean, this was back in the day. I mean, this has all been proved pseudoscience. So it's no longer used as a part of scientific medicine. So that is a very obscure reference, which I still don't really understand. And I just put it down to, well, that's Ken Wilber being clever in some sort of way. And Trey keeps writing her journal as well. And another thought she has is that wouldn't it be great if she could write this book on cancer that she's been meaning to write and it's a bestseller. She's got this ambition in her. And that's really funny. Well, it's sort of strange to think that, you know, you're... Married to one of the most highest selling authors. And your dream is also to write a book. And she's got some friends that, well, actually agree with her. That this book could be good. Because she's covering a lot of things. She's done a lot of research into cancer. And she hasn't seen anything in the field that's quite like it. And of course she's got her own experiences. So... She could, at this stage, write a book that is very well read. And then there's this thing in both of them also, which is that they feel that if they fall apart now, then it negates how well they handled the months of therapy and the stress of doing the house It's almost like an embarrassment of the shape they're in. And it's hard to shake because they've had years of being complimented for being tough, for being steady, but never complimented for letting all those other feelings like fear and deep sorrow and anger come up. And this is a very big issue. This is a very big issue because consider it this way. You've got two highly functioning, highly intelligent, brilliant human beings. There's no doubt about that. And they're full of life. They're full of joy. They're full of love. They've got this brilliant wit about them. They've got this great rapport between them. And they know so much. And they're functioning so well. You know, they're into transcendental meditation. They're into Zen meditation. They're doing all these alternative things. They've got these hyper-stylized, hyper, hyper stylized, meticulously designed diets. It's a really broad, sort of holistic, detailed routine that they've got going on. So there, there's this thing of, well, you're an incredible human being. How can you have any problems? How can you complain? You've just come through cancer. You've just won. This should be the time when you're celebrating. This when this should be the time when things are looking rosy. This should be when things are good for you. And you're actually living with an optimistic outlook more than ever. And you did so well to get through all those tough times. And yet... That's what makes it so hard to admit that there is a problem. That's what makes it so hard to bring the deep-seated issues up to the surface. It makes it even harder. Because when you've got that image of yourself, and you've got all these resources that aren't working, well, it's very hard to do anything that works. And it can get to the point where nothing is working. And it's said that, well, what women provide for men is grounding, and what men provide for women is direction. And we don't want to get involved in a sexist argument about whether that is true or not. It's not a matter of debating feminine and masculine. We're staying away from that. We're just going on a conversation here about a passing thing that seems to be the case sometimes. And we always say that when we talk about the feminine and the masculine because it's a touchy subject in our culture at the moment. And Ken says in the past Treya has offered her uh, offered him grounding. But now he feels grounded. And so that's his clever play on words, which is that there's grounded as in incapable of, in, of flight. because if say say your fleet of planes is grounded, Well, that means they can't fly. They can't do their thing. Whereas if you say, well, my man is my ground or my woman is my grounding, then you say, well, that's what keeps you solid. That's what keeps you stable. So the idea of grounding is, well, two meanings there. And a woman can be that for a man. And for Treya, well, now she just feels aimless. Ken just sits on the couch. He used to be so full of life. He used to have so much wit. And now he just has got nothing. He doesn't feel like writing. He doesn't want to write a book. And it's not that he's got writer's block. It's just that he doesn't feel the urge to. And they're at a social gathering one night. And someone is even there where... They're talking to Ken and they're saying, well, when, when are you going to write your next book? This sort of thing. And it's someone who they didn't really know, but it was someone who was a big fan of Ken, read all of his stuff. And this person sort of says, you know, what, what it must be like to be called potentially the greatest philosopher of consciousness since Freud and then feel it evaporating. As if to say like, how could Picasso not paint? How could, how could Michelangelo not make a sculptor? And so on. He's in that league. He's in that sort of iconic level of brilliancy. And yet, it's stopped for him. And that's a very touchy subject when it comes up. And it gets to the point where, well, Treya thinks she might have a recurrence. She's begging just to recover before she gets knocked down. And then she thinks that things are so bad and there's no way out that maybe she needs to actually leave Ken. And she's tough enough to take this issue to him and say... You know, sometimes I think about leaving you and actually being by myself again. And Ken's response is, well, he feels the same way. And he's had the same thoughts. And so they almost decide, you can keep the dog, says Ken, that it's actually best if they separate. Because there's obviously no way out. And yet they do know that they love each other. So the next day after they've said this, they don't go through it with, with the separation. But they know that Ken's bitterness, his snideness, his neuroses are colliding with her unyieldingness. And they both have Enough therapy experience to know that the only way to crack this neurotic depression between them is to get right into the rage lurking beneath the surface. But that is exactly the problem. Because how do you get enraged at someone with cancer? How do you get furious at a man who has stood by you through thick and thin for two years? There's simply no way to really get to the core. And this is the pressure cooker. And in many relationships, these neuroses occur, in many intimate relationships, and these neuroses occur, and the couples just wear it. And they just go through their whole life, and the man just says, oh, she's so controlling. And the woman just says, oh, he's so stupid, or he's so, he, he's so lifeless. And it's also always just shallow. It's just on the surface. And it's back and forth, and it's like that, and they live like that. But in the case of Treya and Ken, well, they're in very intensified relating. They've had this intense experience, and it's an intense love which means these neuroses, they're amplified. They're brought up even more intensely, which means they actually have to burn through it. And when a relationship is facing their neuroses, and they actually to say, actually, we need to fix this once and for all, well, then there's a burning period. There's a tearing down. And that's where, if you're in therapy, you get one person on one side of the room and one person on the other, and you say, okay, now tell your partner everything you hate about them. Tell your partner everything that's wrong with them. And they vent and they err uh, and they get up and they, ooh, and you do this and 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 this and this and this and this. And you can't do this right and this. And then you say, stop. Okay, now the other side. Everything that's wrong with you. And they say, err, uh, I hate this. I hate this. And this is pathetic and you're terrible. But of course, Ken and Treya can't do this. You want to get angry at a cancer patient? You want to get angry at someone that you love? You want to get angry at someone who has cared for you through thick and thin? And so to cure these neuroses... To overcome these, it needs a real honest relationship dig into the fire, into the hell. And you have to fix it at the root cause. Because otherwise, the surface stuff is only ever going to be on the surface. And those little things, those little comments, those little gestures... They're only the tip of the iceberg. They're only the skin of the face that's hidden deep within. And this all comes to a head one afternoon when Treya walks into Ken's office and sits down to read a newspaper. And Treya, well, she's got a studio of her own, and two offices. And when they were setting up this house, she demanded that they be allotted to her, as her spaces. And Ken had sort of got, it's not even a proper room. It's just a little corner of the lounge room for his study. And this is the one place where he can enjoy some quiet. And he's trying to do some work on just just menial stuff. He's not working on anything brilliant. He's just doing some business stuff. Stuff that just has to be done. And he doesn't really even want to be doing it. And Treya walks in and somehow just manages to sit and read a newspaper. And the crinkling sound of that newspaper is so annoying. And Ken asks her to get out. And she says no. No? No? Is that what you said? Look, nobody is allowed in this room when I'm working who doesn't have a higher than a third grade education or who can't read a goddamn newspaper without moving their lips, says Ken. I hate it when you're snide. I'm going to read my newspaper, says Treya. And he gets up and he walks over to her. And he says, get out. No, says Treya. And they start yelling. They're yelling louder and louder, screaming at each other. They become red in the face, furious. Get out, you goddamn obnoxious bitch. Get out yourself, she says. And he hits her. Again and again, he hits her right across the face. Get out, God damn you. And he strikes her. And they collapse on the sofa, puffing and panting, shocked at what has just happened. And Ken has never hit a woman in his life. And they both knew it. He's never done anything. That could be called resembling violence. And yet this is what it's come to. It's the people that you love the most that can hurt you the most. And for pain in a love relationship, well, it's directly proportionate to the depth of the love. And a couple that goes through a tough time in a relationship, well, that's going to be a very difficult, a very different couple than one that hasn't. And all couples go through their tough times. It's just a matter of intensity. It's just a matter of how well they deal with it and how deep they get with it. And since that moment where Ken hit Treya, well, things start to turn around because they realize they've hit rock bottom and they realize that both of them need to change and they both need to start reassessing how they feel and how they go about this relationship. And so Ken now, well, he starts to be clear about his boundaries He starts to be clear about his own space. And this is actually refreshing for Treya. Because she doesn't have to expend so much energy wondering or guessing what would really make him happy. And then feel guilty if he gets it wrong, if she gets it wrong. And it's no longer a matter of Ken unconditionally supporting Treya. Which he did and which was needed. Now it's different. Now there's a back and forth. Now Ken also needs support. And things slowly do get better. And they start seeing a couple's therapist. And it doesn't matter how brilliant you are in your psychology or how many books you've read on therapy, nothing can actually replace the real practice of doing it yourself. And some therapies, well, you just need another person. There just has to be a third party there. There's no other way around it. Because you can't see certain things. You can't see, it's a, what do you call it? It's like the relationship bubble. That's one thing that it's called. Where you can't see outside of what's going on because you're right in it. Well, it's narcissism. It's the self-contraction. And they don't have the witness. Ken doesn't have his witness or objective observation because he stopped meditating and because he's drinking. And that's why a couples therapist is very important. And it takes time, but things do work back to normal. And they do, over the course of the next months and years, manage to get back to what they had before. Now, when they say, back to normal, remember that for them, normal isn't normal. Normal is actually brilliant. For them, normal is a full blossoming and celebration of love in its most brilliant manifest form. It really is a glorious relationship. A beautiful relationship. It's a Shakti and a Shiva sort of relationship. And it takes time, but they do get there. And for us, well, (laughs) us mere mortals, we can just watch on in awe. And for this part of the story, we have to thank them for their honesty about the tough times because it makes them only human. It makes them all the more human, which makes it, of course, all the more relatable. And the issue that is now coming up again and again is, well, what's the role of the carer? And what are the needs of the carer? And this is something that, we address in a lot more depth, and Ken talks about in a lot more depth later on as this narrative unfolds. But here, at least we're getting a sense of, well, what he's been through to gain the wisdom that he has. What he's been through to become the authority that he is to become on what it means to care for someone what it means to look after someone. And that is something very deep, which we'll be dealing with as the story unfolds. And that is chapter nine. And we'll leave it there for today. We'll be back very soon with chapter 10, which is titled, A Time to Heal. So I hope you're having a beautiful day and I hope you've enjoyed these words. I hope there's been some lessons in here, and I hope, well, we don't need to reflect too much, so at the the risk of divulging into babbling, I think I should just close my mouth. So (laughs) that's all I have to say for now.